Good morning. Our next case involves the matter of foreclosure of a lien by Executive Office Park of Durham Associates, Inc. And uh, Mr. Rock, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court, Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina, my name is Matt Waters and I, along with my co-counsel Hope Carmichael, represent the petitioner appellant, Executive Office Park of Durham Association, Inc. I will refer to the appellant as the association for ease of reference throughout my argument. I would also like to take just a moment to recognize Ms. Cynthia Jones with the Charlotte law firm Sellers, Ayers, Dorch, and Lyons and the Community Associations Institute as a friend of this court. At this time, I'd like to reserve 10 minutes of my time for rebuttal. This case comes before this court upon this court's grant of the association's petition for discretionary review. And the sole issue is whether the Court of Appeals erred when it completely overlooked that Section 1-102A of the North Carolina Condominium Act gives express application and authority of the power of sale to the association's foreclosure at issue in this case and when the Court of Appeals ignored its own recitation of long-standing Supreme Court precedent regarding statutory interpretation in doing so. Because Section 1-102A of the Act very plainly and unambiguously provides that Section 3-116, which is the lien for assessments and provides the association with its power of sale, applies to all condominiums created in this state on or before October 1st, 1986, and because the association's declaration does not expressly provide to the contrary, this court must conclude that the Court of Appeals erred. This court should reverse the Court of Appeals for three reasons. First, the clear and express language of Section 1-102A provides automatic application of Section 3-116 of the Act, which again is the power of sale, to the association and nothing in the declaration expressly prohibits it. Number two, the Court of Appeals conclusion that the association lacks the power of sale because the association failed to amend its declaration. Number one, first ignores and overlooks my first point, but number two, it fundamentally misunderstands and misapprehends condominium and real property law. And point number three, an opinion by this court affirming the Court of Appeals would fly in the face of established case law and would have unintended consequences not only for the operation of pre-October 1st, 1986 condominiums, but also planned communities in this state created before January 1st, 1999. Now turning to my first point, the clear and express language of Section 1-102A provides automatic application of Section 3-116 of the Act and the power of sale to the association, and nothing in the declaration expressly prohibits it. The plain and unambiguous language of Section 1-102A must be followed. It starts with, this chapter applies to all condominiums created within this state after October 1st, 1986. The Court of Appeals apparently read that sentence and then hard stop, completely ignored the rest of Section 1-102A of the Act. However, 1-102A goes on to list a number of sections, including Section 3-116, which again is the power of sale, and says that those sections apply to condominiums created in this state on or before October 1st, 1986, unless the declaration expressly provides to the contrary. 
So because the association's condominium was created before October 1st, 1986, we turn to whether the declaration expressly provides to the contrary. And it, at least if I'm understanding your colleague's brief, he doesn't at this point disagree with your proposed method of analysis up to this point. I think he does say that the declaration expressly indicates that you can't have a power of sale foreclosure in this context. But it, am I right in sort of understanding where we are at this point in this case? That's exactly right, Justice Irvin. Uh, the, the cutting to the chase, this, the, really the, the critical issue before the court is whether the declaration expressly provides to the contrary. The declaration in our case, which is in Article 15 of the declaration, when the only relevant article in the declaration says that the association is provided for the authority to have a lien for assessments when assessments go unpaid and provides for any foreclosure of that lien. So nowhere in the declaration does it expressly prohibit application of Section 3-116 and the power of sale. But when you say there's nothing that expressly prohibits it, isn't it in the declaration that the provisions of the North Carolina Unit Ownership Act will apply? That's, that's what the declaration says, Your Honor, because this condominium in this case was created under the Unit Ownership Act. And that's that where the, the 1963 Act. That's correct, Your Honor. And at that time, that was the only body of law uh, that existed for creation of condominiums. That's one area where right off the bat, when you read the Court of Appeals opinion in the very, maybe the second or third sentence in the opinion, it says that the declaration, when it was filed, created a governing entity called Executive Office Park. Well, that's not true because the creation of the governing entity occurs when the Articles of Incorporation are, are filed. The declaration creates the condominium. The Unit Ownership Act at that time was the only body of law to create a condominium because condominiums exist, if at all, only by creation of statute. Is there anything in that act that uh, authorizes a non-judicial power of sale? The Unit Ownership Act in 47A-22 uh, addresses foreclosure and addresses foreclosure by suit. So that was the law that existed up until the time that the legislature in 1986 decided to replace the Unit Ownership Act as the applicable body of law for creation of condominiums. The Unit Ownership Act, Your Honor, was a largely criticized and problematic body of law, and so the legislature saw fit in 1986 to uh, amend or adopt the Condominium Act uh, to fill a lot of gaps. And so in 1986, among other things, the, the uh, legislature uh, created Section 3-116, which provides an additional procedure for the association to collect its assessments. And did the association take advantage of the opportunity to amend or otherwise update its organization under the uh, 1963 Act to bring it up to what was authorized by the 1985 Act? Wasn't necessary for the association to do that, Your Honor, because 1-102A uh, made those sections, including 3-116, expressly applicable to the association automatically. There was no requirement then for the Court of Appeals to reach the conclusion that the association had to amend its declaration, again, fundamentally misunderstands condominium law. It's impossible for the association to amend its declaration to bring it within the Condominium Act because the condominium at issue in this case wasn't created under the Condominium Act. Well, is that where the 
resolution is for us to consider in light of the fact that under the 1963 Act, if the declaration says that the provisions of that Act apply and there is nothing in that Act that authorizes a non-judicial power of sale, then that would be therefore the express conflict with the fact that if there was no update or no addendum to have the 1985 Act to come into play, then we are left to look at the 1963 Act as controlling. The 1963 Act is not controlling, and, and here's why, Your Honor. I have a two-point step. First, first of all, again, the legislature saw fit to replace that Act as the formation and operation and governance for condominiums, and the Section 1-1028 expressly says that, and it would be wrong for this court to ignore the legislative intent and clear and unambiguous language in 1-102A. And 47, 47A-22 um, still, and here, here's the context, this is why that the sentence in 1-102A that says that it applies to events and circumstances which occur after October 1st, 1986, that's why that's there. Because if we were before this court after, right after the um, formation of the Condominium Act, and we were attempting to foreclose um, a, a lien for assessments that occurred on a default before the Condominium Act's formation, then yes, we would still look to 47A-22. But there's no dispute at all that the lien for assessments and the defaulted issue occurred, in this case, well after formation of the Condominium Act, and so the legislature replaced that provision with the Condominium Act. But let's turn to why Let's, let's turn more to the analysis um, why the declaration well, does not before, expressly before, provide to the Congress. Before you, before you do that, uh, I believe you filed as a memorandum of additional authority the 2022 statute dealing with this issue. To what extent is that enactment relevant to the decision in this case? Your Honor, the point to make with respect to the uh, June amendment uh, to 47A, or I'm sorry, to, to 1-102A, is that it's expressly a clarification of the legislative intent to have that uh, section 1-102A apply those sections enumerated within that section to pre-86 condominiums. The legislature was appalled that the Court of Appeals reached the conclusion that it did and saw fit to amend that to make what was already obvious even more obvious. And because the Court of Appeals failed to even cite anywhere within its opinion the rest of 1-102A. The, the, the session law in question says it's effectively, it becomes effective upon enactment, in essence. Does that amendment apply to this case? Again, Your Honor, the point to make is that it's expressly a clarification. Um, the, the court will apply the section 1-102A as it existed before that amendment came into place, and the court should reach the same conclusion in applying section 1-102A before the amendment as it would reach uh, after the amendment. So I wanna highlight for the court the, the Kimmler case to begin uh, the discussion about why the, whether the declaration expressly provides to the contrary. In the Kimmler case, the court examined whether the association had authority to amend its declaration. The declaration in the, for Sugar Hill HOA in the Kimmler case recited that the developer could amend the declaration. 
The association subsequently amended the declaration and uh, the amendment was challenged. In the, in the Kimmler case, the court's opinion read, though the HOA was formed prior to 1999, and this is a, a, a planned community formed before the Planned Community Act, and let me just step back and say why that's important. It's because the Planned Community Act, for all intents and purposes, that is, as it pertains to this case, has a section, it's 1-102C, which is, for all intents and purposes, identical to 1-102A in the Condominium Act. But the court's opinion read that though the HOA was formed prior to 1999, there is nothing in the declaration or articles of incorporation which expressly provides to the contrary to limit the association's authority to amend its declaration. Specifically, the opinion reads, there is nothing in the declaration which expressly states that the Sugar Hill HOA is not authorized to amend the declaration. So Sugar Hill HOA was able to take advantage of section 2-117 of the Planned Community Act which did not exist at the time the Sugar Hill HOA was, was created, and the association was entitled to amend its declaration under Section 2-117 of the Planned Community Act. Similarly, in River Point, River Point is another community that was formed prior to January 1st, 1999 as a planned community, and the court in that case examined whether the, whether the uh, River Point Homeowners Association had authority to uh, implement a fines for violations of the declaration and a procedure for enforcement of those fines. And the court in that case reached the same conclusion that the court did in Kimmler in finding that the declaration did not expressly provide to the contrary, did not expressly state that the association could not have a procedure or could not fine for the violation of assessments and not have a procedure for the enforcement of the fines. The test is not whether the declaration says that the association has power of sale. That's the incorrect test. The correct test and the test applied by the trial courts at all times in this foreclosure is whether the declaration expressly provides to the contrary. In other, in other words, your argument then is that the uh, non-judicial foreclosure process is available unless, in essence, the declaration says you can't use non-judicial foreclosure proceedings to enforce a lien under this declaration. That's exactly right, Your Honor, and, and that's another way that the Court of Appeals got it wrong and misinterpreted Section 1-102B. 1-102B means that the association could have amended its declaration after creation of the Condominium Act to expressly exempt itself or accept itself out of application of the numbered sections that, of the Condominium Act that automatically applied because that amendment would be under the Unit Ownership Act and it would still be in conformance with the Condominium Act because in that instance then the declaration would expressly provide to the contrary. The, the, the test is not that the association has to amend its declaration to bring itself within because in doing so that would completely ignore and make meaningless and gut Section 1-102A. So it's your position that the only action that would be taken by the association here or an entity similarly uh, uh, situated would be to, if there's going to be any action taken, it would be an action to uh, be exempt from the operation of the 1985 Act. Otherwise, if you do nothing, then you are automatically covered by the 1985 Act. 
if you do nothing or if your declaration already expressly provides to the contrary. And let me turn the court's attention to the official commentary under the uh, Condominium Act to draw the courts, uh, to, to give an example of what that, what, what that means. Um, the court's official, the, the official commentary reads that under section, subsection A, section 3-118, which is association records, automatically applies to old condominiums, meaning the condominiums created under the Unit Ownership Act. As a result, a unit owner's association of an old condominium must maintain certain financial records and all the records of the association shall be made reasonably available for examination by any unit owner and his authorized agents, even if the old law did not require the records be kept or access provided. If the declaration or bylaws, however, provided that the unit owner could not inspect the records of the association without permission of the president of the association, the restriction in the declaration would continue to be valid and enforceable. So under your honor's example, either the declaration when it's created under the Unit Ownership Act already has an express provision which would accept itself out of application, automatic application of that section within the Condominium Act, or alternatively, the declaration could be amended to expressly exempt itself or accept itself out of the automatic application. And that's what 1-102B means. Turning to my second point, the Court of Appeals conclusion that the association lacks the power of sale because the association did not amend its declaration, again, ignores my first point and then fundamentally misunderstands real property and condominium law. Again, the association cannot amend its declaration to bring itself within the Condominium Act because condominiums are creatures of statute. They exist, if at all, by operation of statute and by strict compliance with the body of law at issue at that point in time when the condominium was created. And so this kind of, it would be impossible for this condominium's declaration to have been amended to bring itself within 47C. But even more importantly, that's not necessary because of the clear and express language in section 1-102A. It is unnecessary and the Court of Appeals completely overlooked that. As to my third point, an opinion by this court affirming the Court of Appeals would completely fly in the face of established case law and have unintended consequences for the operation of pre-October 1st, 1986 condominiums, but also for planned communities created in this state before January 1st, 1999. Leaving in place the Court of Appeals opinion would create marketability nightmares for condominiums that have had power of sale foreclosures hundreds if not thousands of such, and also for that matter, foreclosures, power cell foreclosures for planned communities created before the Planned Community Act came into place in January 1st, 1999. Because again, those statutory bodies, those statutory acts provided retroactively and automatically so, and in this case, provided the power of sale to those associations and to those communities. So again, because our declaration does not expressly provide to the contrary, because the declaration does not expressly exempt or preclude application of section 3-116 of the act, because a decision by this court to affirm the Court of Appeals would have unintended consequences across the board for condominiums, and because 
the decision by the Court of Appeals fundamentally misunderstands basic condominium law. This court should reverse the Court of Appeals. Before you sit down, um, it says in uh, 3-116 uh, that the power of sale is available uh, unless uh, it's under subsection H. And then under subsection H, it, it says a claim of lien securing a debt consisting solely of fines, uh, interest on unpaid fines or attorney fees incurred by the association solely associated with fines uh, can only be enforced by judicial foreclosure. I'm just quoting subsection H. Has, the, has there been a determination uh, with regard to what is owing and whether what is owing would fall under subsection H, or is that something for the Court of Appeals to consider on remand were we to rule in your favor? Your Honor, default is not issue, uh, not at issue before this court, uh, but it is, what is at issue is that the last payment ever made by Mr. Rock was to redeem the properties out of the 2016 foreclosure in January of 2017, and there have been no payments made by Mr. Rock of any kind since that time. So there are assessments owed there. It is not a situation where subsection H of 3-116 would preclude the association's power of sale at any point in time. That has not been argued by the parties at any point in this foreclosure nor in the 2016 foreclosure. The only thing at issue um, are the assessments. And to quickly address your point about remand, we don't believe it's, it's not this court's obligation to give the Court of Appeals a second bite of the apple to decide a, a, an issue that the Court of Appeals declined to address. This court should send this case back to the trial court well, and allow the association your, 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 to your proceed. Colleague, your colleague did argue in the Court of Appeals that there, for various reasons he was not in default. Didn't he? The default is not an issue before he, this court. He, he argued in the Court of Appeals that he was not in default. He did, Your Honor. And he's entitled to have a decision on that issue at some point, isn't he? Your Honor, again, I think that's the appellee's argument to make. In other words, if the Court of Appeals says we don't need to reach a particular issue because we're going to decide this case on the basis of a different question in his favor, he's not entitled to have the other arguments that he advanced considered on remand? Your Honor, that, that's for Mr. Rock to make. That, that's his argument well, are to you make. Con, are we, you contending that he's not entitled to that? Even if this, if, even if this court sends this case back to the, the remands this case back to the Court of Appeals for determination, uh, we believe the issue of default will be decided in the association's favor. Well, but that, that's a different question than whether he's in, entitled to a decision on it at all, isn't he? Isn't it? He may, he may be entitled to it, but, but we don't think that it's this court's obligation to send it back to the Court of Appeals. We, this court can send it to the trial court uh, and reinstate the uh, order affirming the order authorizing sale. Um, Mr. Rock would have still a number of protections provided to him, including the ability to file a lawsuit to enjoin the lawsuit on equitable grounds. He would still have the ability to redeem the property out of foreclosure. So not all is lost for Mr. Rock if this case goes back to the trial court. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court, my name is Mark Hayes, 
and I represent the property owner, Martin Rock. Um, I will start a little bit at the end just because we were talking about that just now. I'm not going to reiterate my arguments about the Court of Appeals about default, but just to give you a quick overlay of what's happening on that level. When you have a non-judicial uh, foreclosure proceeding, you go to the clerk. If you fail there, this court's opinion in Lux says you can't reuse that, uh, those um, alleged defaults from before that time. They clearly did. It's in the ledger. It's in the record. At the Court of Appeals, they did not contend, they did not rebut that position at all. That's $35,000. We're talking about an alleged default of $9,000. Mr. Rock has a credit of $26,000 for that. Secondly, at one point, Mr. Rock made a redemption payment of $80,000. There's an affidavit from their accounting administrator that says, you make this payment, everything's clear and zeroed out at this point, including attorney's fees. Three weeks later, before any assessment is overdue, um, there's an attorney's fees charge for another $35,000. So, and again, that's not challenged. Look at the Court of Appeals briefs. They don't even well, contend. Mr. Hayes, I did, I did look at the Court of Appeals briefs, and they argued, and they argued for three or four pages that the uh, that your client was in fact in default, and the Court of Appeals didn't reach that decision. I mean, the trial court found that you were in default. The Court of Appeals didn't reach the issue of whether you were in default. Uh, why is not your position essentially that you're entitled to have your arguments with respect to uh, whether you were properly found in default decided by the Court of Appeals rather than that you are somehow summarily entitled to win based on an argument that your colleague argued against in the Court of Appeals, rightly or wrongly? Uh, yes, sir, and I appreciate that, and I won't belabor the point further. I just want to get into that since we kind of tailed in on that um, here. Um, the key language here is simply, unless the declaration expressly provides to the contrary. We're really um, just, just a plain text analysis case, and ostensibly um, EOP agrees with that, that we're just looking at that plain text. So we're just looking to the declaration. As a broad overview of what's happening here, we had the old act, the Unit Ownership Act, then we had the new act, North Carolina Condo Act. EOP was unanimously formed under the old act, and it is generally the controlling scheme. But we have this new act, which fills the gaps. And those are the um, words that Mr. Waters just used, that the condo act fills the gaps on old condominiums unless it, the, the declaration, the governing document of those old condominiums, expressly provides to the contrary. So we're just looking to the declaration. And we're specifically looking to the power that they're trying to import from Chapter 47C, which is the foreclosure power, 47C-3-116. And, and, and where, what specific provision of the declaration discusses the association's remedies in the event that it believes that somebody is in default under an assessment? What specific provision applies? So by adopting the scheme of the Unit Ownership Act, in, which it adopts in its introduction, and then it adopts specifically in its um, uh, power, or Article 12B, where it says it adopts, quote, all of the powers and duties set forth in the UOA. So, so I mean, your argument, at least in part, appears to be that the mere fact that the uh, <coughs> declaration purports that the, the uh, states that the condo was established under the old act, I can't keep the date straight, so right. I'm just going to call it old act, that by itself 
is a is an explicit deprivation of the otherwise available right under the new law to engage in a non-judicial foreclosure? Yes, sir. I mean, if, if you don't allow for incorporation of these acts when they say, I'm incorporating the uh, powers and duties of the Unit Ownership Act, what you're asking um, associations to do would be to copy verbatim these statutes. And I don't think anybody thinks that that's the standard, that we would have a declaration of hundreds of pages. So, so in, in essence, your argument is that any condominium declaration that purports to have been made under the old law has explicitly rejected or explicitly deprived the condominium association of the authority to use a non-judicial foreclosure process like that granted under the new act? I wouldn't say anything nearly as, as, as broad as that. We'd have a different case maybe if it just had some boilerplate at the top that it's been organized on this. We don't have that. What right. we have is, you know, them expressly saying those powers that we all know is in the statute, we're adopting those. Any of those powers that are listed there, we have them. But can you, can you, uh, does, does the fact that you adopt certain powers exclude the availability of others? I think it does. Okay. Because, and let's get right to that. So first, the adoption is in Article um, 12B. I have all those powers. So then we say, well, what is the field that we're discussing? We're discussing foreclosure. So we go to the Unit Ownership Act and we look and see how is foreclosure done in that act, which is incorporated in here. And we see the language in the, um, uh, the Unit Ownership Act in 47A-22B. This is what's adopted, that a lien may be um, foreclosed by suit. So it says well, by suit. It says may be. It doesn't say must be. Right. But of course, the may be really goes to the question of uh, the association's power. They're not going to foreclose every time, right? I mean, we wouldn't want to put, we couldn't put uh, language in it that says they will, because that would create a situation where every time there was a deficit, they were under obligation to foreclose. And of course, they can pursue fines by money judgments, by informal agreement, by workouts like we had in this, you know, case with the redemption payment. You know, they couldn't put it that way. So the may is not applying to the, for, the by suit part. But the, for, the by suit language that right. you frequently refer to in your brief, that appears in the old statute, not in the declaration in this case directly. It applies through incorporation. Okay. It applies in the Unit Ownership Act, which those powers have been and lifted. The incorporation occurs because the declaration says this condominium, this condominium is created pursuant to the old law. Well, we have that in the introduction, of course, right. but we also have more specifically in 12B where it says, I have, this association has all of the powers and duties of the Unit Ownership Act. Okay. All is a very inclusive word. They could have pick, picked out ones that they wanted that were, to, you know, here and there. Um, they also have a little uh, a part that ends, comes after that says, except at the conflict with this declaration. So if they had said, we want all these powers, but if we say elsewhere in the declaration, we don't want some of those powers, we don't get them. But there is nothing in there that says we don't get them. So that all language is an adoption of everything that the declaration doesn't otherwise say, we're not bringing those over. And so that includes 47A-22, which is the language of foreclosure by suit. So, And you interpret that to mean that any foreclosure not just can be by suit, but has to be by suit. Right, because any plain text analysis, the, one of the first cardinal rules of analysis is you give meaning to every word, right? If it just said foreclosure, or if it said nothing, well, if it said nothing, that would be a clear, uh, a, a gap 
that we could fill with the, with the um, Condo Act 47C. If it just said foreclosure, it would be closer, though I would argue in that situation that because you, in, you interpret um, contracts by the, in the lens of the language, in the lens of what the law currently is at that time, whenever it refers to something legal, that that would refer to chapter 1-339.1, the old style judicial foreclosure. But when they say foreclosure by suit, if you allow foreclosure by suit, oh, and foreclosure not by suit, then by suit has no meaning. What meaning does it have? And, and otherwise, it could just say foreclosure. Well, the, chief, the chief pointed out a, a, a provision that said that certain types of obligations owed by a uh, condominium owner to an association had to be done by judicial foreclosure. That's right. And so why would that language not, you know, be if you construed it consistently with the provision that subsection F that the Chief Justice referred to, why would that not accommodate? We, we, don't, have a cons we don't have an inconsistency. The language is provides to the contrary. There's nothing contrary because here foreclosure, only foreclosure that's talked about is by suit, which would be full judicial. The problem we have here is that you're trying to import something in, non-judicial foreclosure, that has already got something in that gap. You know, we're filling gaps, but there's already something in that gap. And about foreclosure, it says by suit. If we allow foreclosure by suit and not by suit, then we have made the words for by suit mean nothing. If I want, well, if me, I ask. Let me ask you something about that. Um, I'm a little confused about it. If, it. if the language in the declaration or but that it refers to is by suit, foreclosure yes, by suit, um, and it doesn't say by suit and by no other means, right? Um, aren't we having to imply that language? According to your argument? Let's take a look at the rest of 47A22 as an example. It says, may be foreclosed by suit by the manager or board of directors. Can the janitor foreclose? It doesn't say no janitor. All it says is by manager or board of directors. By saying something affirmatively, if I order a pizza and I don't tell you what I want on it and you bring me a pizza, I can't, you know, it's got anchovies on it, I can't really complain. I order a pizza and I say I want a pizza with pepperoni, mushrooms, and olives, and you bring me one with anchovies, and your defense is it didn't say, you didn't tell me not to get you one with anchovies, when you say something affirmatively, it precludes those negative other things. Well, that, when, isn't that, that's a rule of construction, though, correct? Yes, ma'am. And so if it said expressly that by suit and by no other means, yes, then that would be express, correct? That would be expressed as well, but you also have to think about the context of where this is said. I mean, I'm just curious as to how, if we have to imply that language, because it isn't there, it's expressly in there. Isn't it by definition not in there, if we're having to imply that it's there by some construction rule? Well, you are taking on the obligation, which you shouldn't, of having to imply that as the little turn that they, they have in the brief, that we turn from expressly provides to the contrary to expressly prohibits. That, that's not the standard that we have to hit, is especially well, prohibits. Tell, tell me what, what the difference between the, the two is. Oh, sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. To expressly provide to the contrary. <laughs> to expressly provide to the contrary, you are providing something that is contrary to something else, but you are affirmatively providing something, as opposed to um, I am expressly excluding something. I am I'm saying in the negative, you can't do this. 
That's the difference. This doesn't, the statute doesn't say um, expressly prohibit. That, and this also will bring up all sorts of you know, policy concerns why, as why this couldn't be true, but, which I'll get to momentarily. But it says provides to the contrary. It does provide for something, foreclosure by suit. It is contrary because foreclosure by suit is the op If I ask somebody who didn't know anything about this, what's the opposite of non-judicial foreclosure? You know, what's the opposite of non-smorgasbord pizza bears? You would say smorgasbord pizza bears. I mean, the opposite of non-judicial foreclosure is judicial foreclosure. So they're providing to the contrary by, um, by stating it has to be foreclosure by suit. Um, we also have to keep in mind, going back to Justice Hudson's question, the context here, which is that the standard that EOP is putting forward would be effectively like saying, I I would, I'm holding to account someone in the year 2000 to say, I shall never use Twitter, or I shall never drive a Tesla. Those things didn't exist. Because the Condo Act, when it came into, into place, automatically made all condos from that point forward Condo, uh, you know, Chapter 47C, New Condo Act um, uh, uh, associations, that means that every Unit Ownership Act association necessarily came into existence before there was a, a, even the idea that a association could have non-judicial power of sale. Unit Ownership Act, all that, all that you had was full foreclosure, 1-339.1, and you had chapter 45, I'm a bank and I'm going to collect on your mortgage. That's all you had. So when they say foreclosure at that moment in time, I mean, there's not even the contemplation. You know, just like I would say, I couldn't have said in 2000, I'll never drive a Tesla. When they formed the Unit Ownership Act, they couldn't have said there shall be no power of sale by an association. That wasn't even in the, the concept. So we have to uh, keep that in mind as well, what that standard would be. Um, moving on to some of EOP's counterarguments um, well, about... Before, before you do that, uh, do you, would you urge us to adopt the Court of Appeals opinion in its entirety? Um, in other words, do you think that opinion is a completely correct statement of law? I think it is correct. I do think that it gives short shrift to the core governing provision, which is expressly provides to the contrary. Um, it doesn't mention expressly right. provides to the contrary. Not, it's not, not expressly. Short so. shrift. It's not a matter of short yeah. shrift. It's omitted completely, isn't it? Right. So that would, that would definitely be a point of clarification. Um, Going back to your last argument, you're not arguing that power of sale uh, uh, for closures under deeds of trust didn't exist at the time that the Unit Ownership Act came into being? It didn't exist except for uh, in a traditional like bank mortgage. Um, there was no, in 1980, uh, to my knowledge, there was no non-judicial foreclosure by a private, you know, organizing uh, association, you know, planned community, all of that came later. So if, if somebody privately made a loan with a standard form deed of trust that provided for power of sale, that wouldn't have been available? I don't know that it would have been. I mean, that's obviously a question that could be researched, but I don't know the answer to that. But, but the point is, uh, even if the power of sale were available in any setting, 
uh, it wouldn't be like a, a Tesla or something that didn't exist. It existed, it just had not been applied to a situation uh, like it would be later. I would just say that it would be a real stretch to believe that uh, you know, an entity could, a private entity could just adopt that power. Um, I certainly just wouldn't think that would be fair notice, just going to the fundamental issues of fairness. And just interpreting it in the context of when it was adopted. Again, it was adopted you know, back in the 80s, and it was adopted unanimously. Unanimously and voluntarily. EOP makes, takes the position that you know, the Unit Ownership Act um, provisions are boilerplate because that was the only scheme um, in existence. Whether it was the only scheme in existence or not, um, it provides that only if the unanimous owners adopt that scheme will it, you become a Unit Ownership Act. You, they could have gone forward doing nothing, I guess. They could have just used restrictive covenants, which was you know, what they did for most of uh, the 20th century. Um, and I'm not going to argue about the merits or not merits of that, but they had choices. They chose foreclosure by suit by adopting that language. And EOP is now asking this court to step into a private uh, contractual agreement between two private parties and turn that upside down. And that brings up some, um, some major concerns. Um, why, why would uh, an entity like the association uh, want to benefit from having an update of something that did not exist, as you say it, or exist differently and have the opportunity to take advantage of that greater opportunity as opposed to being restricted to the older language that something did not exist or did not exist in that form. Right. So what would like the association's motivation be that why they would want the non-judicial proceeding? Well, maybe to use your pizza analogy, uh, perhaps anchovies weren't available for pizza at the time. Right. Uh, so why not opt to have a greater opportunity for something that is available more currently than was in existence then, as opposed to having to affirmatively opt into it if it can be construed to automatically exist because of, of updates. Right. You know, it, somewhat like a cell phone situation, if I do nothing to my cellular telephone and just let the update occur, then that's fine as opposed to having to opt out of right. an update and say, oh, I don't want the more current technology. Uh, I just want to stay in, a, in an older state. Sure. I think the, the governing principle here is that the, pri the priority interest here is the owners. It's not the association which is created to supposedly benefit the owners. It's the owners. And the owners should be able to say, you know what, if I don't put my white picket fence up, if I don't you know, trim my tulips or whatever, then if the, this association which you're creating to be able to govern us amongst ourselves, um, if they come after me, I want them to have to come after me and not take my house on every little thing. They may have to come after me for a money judgment um, or you know, suspending services or whatever. But they, we have the right as the owners to say, if it gets to that next level, and the thing about these non-judicial um, proceedings is if there's a default of $1, $1, they can come after your house. Doesn't matter, doesn't have to be a, of the scale of the house. They can make you sell that house, make you sell that condo, because you're over $1. And you can sure see how unit owners might say, wow, that is tremendous. 
I want, if they are coming after me, it better be a big enough deal that they're going to do a full judicial proceeding. And what we have here is those unit owners unanimously, necessarily because you have to do that for a unit ownership act, they unanimously said that's what they wanted. And it's not boilerplate. The unit ownership act is all over that declaration. They're very deliberate about that. In an opt-out situation that EOP is, um, is spinning for this court, let's, ag well, are, again. Are, 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 you know, I, I was trying not to interrupt you, Mr. Holmes, but I mean, I guess I need to now. Are you saying, you know, the Court of Appeals opinion sort of rests on an opt-in theory. Are you saying <coughs> that, we, that that's correct, that this set of statutory provisions that we have in front of us should be construed to require what amounts to an opt-in? Right. Well, we're, we're, so there's two things there. Okay. The, the yeah. Condo yeah. Um, Act. Just, just to make sure that I understand what you're saying, uh, are you arguing that this is an opt-in situation or not? Yes. Okay. There, there's no debate that if the condo, if the old, any old condo association wants to come, become a 47C, they can become like that. And it's actually really interesting. Why hasn't that happened here? They have, they have this, you know, default or they're dealing with whomever. They could have called a board meeting at any time. They could have called it after the, uh, or the condo act was passed. They could have, you know, done it when Mr. Rock first bought. They could have done it yesterday. They could have had a board meeting and said, hey, we want this power. This is a good power. All these policy reasons we want this power. Let's vote and, and, um, and adopt it. They're, a 40, they're automatically a 47C. They're no less a 47C than anybody else. Well, why would they do that if they thought they didn't have to? Well, for one reason, it would save everybody a ton of time. It would have taken 30 minutes. It wouldn't have even taken an attorney. It's like if it was so easy. The answer is quite obvious, I think. They're at odds with the owners. If they could vote for it, why wouldn't they? So easy, 30 minutes. But they're obviously at odds with the owners about this. Can, um, I just want to yes, make sure I understand what you're saying. So you're not arguing that, the, that if the General Assembly wanted to require, to, to make this non-judicial sale available to all existing condo associations, that it couldn't do that. You're just saying that it didn't with this statute? Um, it allowed a provision for them to do it voluntarily. It, al and it allowed a process for fill-in for condo associations that hadn't addressed that. But they were also protecting, and this is talked about in the, the comment um, at the end of the statute, um, they were also protecting those owners' rights that if they had set something else up, that they would hold to that, which in, it invokes just general fairness, but also constitutional principles, which are addressed in the memorandum of additional authority I submitted to this court, um, the Lowe's case. It talks more about that. So they were allowing, um, they were allowing for some things, but they were balancing the fact that ultimately when the, when the, Owners unanimously said we want foreclosure by suit, for example, they could keep that. Thank you. Um, anyway, to uh, loop back over to Justice Irwin's question, the opting in and the opting out, they have the ability to opt in, in part or in whole, at any time. When I'm talking about the opt out, what I'm talking about is um, EOP saying it has to have this express language it basically says, I don't have power of sale. But, but in you, order but for you it almost had uh, the way this way uh, 47C-1-102 reads, you almost have to have opted out before 
you knew you needed to opt out. Exactly, Your Honor. And, and so that's your argument that they they are in effect you are unless they can show that you didn't opt in before the adoption of the new act, they've opted out? I'm saying that in, in them arguing that you have to opt out, and by definition, a UAA cannot have opted out, at least for some period of time until they have time to get their ducks in a row, there would necessarily be a period where it would apply regardless of whether they opted in or out. It would take probably a month you know, to get the board together for them to opt out of the automatic application of the 47C. So effectively, they're taking the position that, okay, it might be unconstitutional for a month, but it'll probably be okay after that. And we obviously cannot be pursuing a uh, interpretation that is gonna be that fundamentally flawed. Um, and it's just contrary to just fundamental fairness as well, um, that you would have to opt out of something that you didn't know existed, and that there would be some period of time when it would apply to you anyway. Or it could be, it, you know, I mean, basically my understanding of the way this statute works is it did not apply to conduct that occurred prior to the enactment of the new law. So that in essence, prior to the enactment of the new law, whatever the rules were before had to be followed with respect to that conduct, but not afterwards, so that we've got a prospectively applicable procedure. Uh, that is in effect unless there's something in the declaration that says that it explicitly says that it's not. Right. Well, you would have two different things happening there. You would have the uh, underlying activity, and then you would have when the power came into effect, uh, you know, so it could get pretty muddy. But I still think, you know, I could come up with a hypothetical where you would not have opted out in time, and it would be... Does it, does it, does it involve pizza? It may. <laughs> All right. Um... Even if, and I've touched on this a little bit, even if we look at the plain text and you say, well, the General Assembly you know, meant to retroactively apply this, whether they can opt out or not, this court is the ultimate arbiter, and this is the memo of additional authority I submitted for the Lowe's case. Um, this court is the ultimate authority of whether such a provision would violate the contracts clause. Um, Article one, section 10, of the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, Article One, Section 17 of the North Carolina Supreme Court. Um, these concerns are addressed in the uniform comment. So while I've been espousing a plain text interpretation and I hold to that, if this court were to go the other way on that, I think you would have to investigate those constitutional issues. And that would be, obviously we've not briefed uh, on that. Um, so I don't know if you, this court would call for additional briefing or how that would work out. But that would be something that would need to be addressed. Was any constitutional claim raised on behalf of your client, neither the trial court or before the court of appeals? I think in interpreting this retroactively, this court would have uh, the place to, con to consider those concerns because we are talking about the did, issue did, of retroactivity. Did, did, did your client raise a constitutional argument before the trial court or not? No, sir. How about before the Court of Appeals? I honestly don't recall. Okay, that's, that's always a fair. <laughs> um, in any case, uh, so to sum up, the Declaration adopts the UAA. It has a place for foreclosure. That gap doesn't need to be filled. EOP itself says Chapter 47 is for filling gaps. There's no gap to be filled. There are the constitutional issues. There's the reasonable expectation issues. 
addressing quickly a couple of comments um, uh, made by EOP um, about a couple of cases. They cite Kimmler and Riverpoint. I guess they think those are some of their more important cases. In neither of those cases is there any analysis of what the declaration language actually said. So if our touchstone phrase here is that the declaration expressly provides to the contrary, we're not going to get any guidance from cases that don't say what the declaration said. It's just a statement of the omission. The declaration, the conclusory statement, the declaration said nothing to the contrary. So those cases really have very little um, uh, controlling uh, power. Finally, to that issue of, or the question that was at the end of their time about whether the new statute uh, is, a, um, is governing or just a clarification, and they took the position that it was a clarification. I'm not sure how you can look at their memorandum of additional authority and see the number of additional lines and crossouts and think that it is a clarification. They're clearly taking a new position. Uh, with a minute to spare, I'll take your questions or take a seat. Thank you, Council. Thank you. Rebuttal. May it please the court. I have but two points to make on rebuttal, but before I get there, I want to quickly touch on something that I just heard Mr. Hayes say, which was that the cases I cited in my argument just a moment ago said nothing about what the declaration said, and that's completely contrary to what those cases say. The Kimbler and River Point cases that I discussed with this court specifically cite to what the declaration says and what it doesn't say in applying uh, those sections uh, retroactively and automatically. As to my two points, I just heard from somebody who seems to not understand condominium law. Uh, I heard a bunch of meaningless semantics. We heard a lot about pizza, but what I saw was a bunch of spaghetti trying to be thrown against the wall to see what sticks. Uh, what I also heard was that Mr. Hayes admits that if our declaration just uses the word foreclosure, which it does, then we win. I also heard this court zero in on his most critical flaw in his argument that the test is not whether the prior law says otherwise, the test is whether the declaration expressly says otherwise. And because our declaration does not expressly exempt itself from application of section 3-116, then the Court of Appeals decision cannot stand. And as to Justice Morgan's question, and a number of you had the same question as well, the Court of Appeals opinion completely flies in the face of a number of cases. No case has ever said that we were in an opt-in situation. No case has ever said what Mr. Rock would have this court believe should be the conclusion. We've got the Sapletcha case. We've got N. Ray Johnson, Reedy, Moss Creek, Brookwood. All of those cases cite to the fact that there is automatic application of those enumerated sections in the Condominium Act, so long as the declaration does not expressly provide to the contrary. There has never been a case in North Carolina that would say what Mr. Rock would have this court believe is the case. So for all of these reasons that I've laid out before the court, chiefly that the declaration does not expressly provide to the contrary, this court should reverse the opinion of the Court of Appeals. Very quick question. Um, what do you say to Mr. Hayes' argument that they couldn't have in the declaration expressly said to, otherwise to exclude a method that they couldn't have known existed at the time? 
They could, Your Honor, and the, comment, the official commentary in the Condominium Act says, says as such. Um, in application of Section 3-118 in association records, the declaration could have already said, and this is what I was discussing with Justice Morgan, the declaration could have already said, um, provided language that would have exempted uh, the records that would have been available to uh, members of the association on demand. Um, if it said that the declaration must, uh, that the, the president has that sole authority to make that decision. Um, and again, it gets back to my point that I made about 1-102B. That's where the association can amend its declaration to exempt itself out of automatic application if the association's members decide that uh, the declaration should be amended uh, to do that. It's not an amendment as Mr. Hayes would have the court believe that it can be decided in 30 minutes by board of directors again. I, if I had, I, I wish I had hours um, before uh, your honors uh, because I could objectively point out why almost every statement made by Mr. Hayes just a moment ago is wrong, particularly as it pertains to condominium law. Uh, but it, it's just, that's not how condominiums operate. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you counsel, Mr. Clark. All rise.